One morning, R.C. Chapman, a devout Christian, was asked how he was feeling. I'm burdened this morning, was his reply, but his happy countenance contradicted his words. So the questioner exclaimed in surprise, are you really burdened, Mr. Chapman? Yes, but it's a wonderful burden. It's an overabundance of blessings for which I cannot find enough time or words to express my gratitude. In that, I am burdened. Seeing the puzzled look on the face of his friend, Chapman added with a smile, I'm referring to Psalm 68, verse 19, my friend, where it says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah, which fully describes my condition. In that verse, our Father in heaven reminds us that He daily loads us with benefits. I know that for many of us, these are troubled times, and there is often a dread when we wake up every morning wondering, how bad will it be today? Unfortunately, we have forgotten that we do not go through the challenges of daily life alone, but that our Almighty God journeys with us. However, because we are not in fellowship with God or have an intimate relationship with our Lord, we lose sight of just how wonderful and how secure our lives are in Christ. And so we want to begin a new sermon series titled, Unshakable, as we study the book of 1 John together. In this series, we want to learn what it means to be in fellowship with God and how to grow more intimately close to Him, and in the process, build up a confident faith that will allow us to be unshakable in these times of uncertainties. It is my hope and prayer that at the end of our study in this book of 1 John, that we will wake up every morning of every day with a smile on our face and with a joyful attitude, exclaiming like Chapman did, that we are burdened because we cannot find enough time or words to express our gratitude for the overabundance of blessing our loving and gracious Lord gives each of us. So let's begin our study. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 John, which is towards the end of your Bibles as we take a look at chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 2 of this book. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 2. And as you're turning to the book of 1 John, I just want to note that John is writing this letter to Christians, and he will begin his letter by talking about what it means to be in fellowship with God and flesh out what that relationship looks like, because it is in an intimate fellowship with God where we find security and confidence in our faith to make us truly unshakable in these uncertain times. I read now from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John begins his letter in verse 1 by noting his own personal experience as one who was an apostle of Jesus Christ and noting the experience of others who had personally heard, seen, and experienced the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, whose message brings life to all. And in verse 2, he writes that this life is not merely talking about having a good life, but it was talking about having an eternal life, which is synonymous with salvation, meaning that the quote-unquote good of the good news is that eternal life and salvation are available to all people. Of course, this eternal life is something God the Father has given through God the Son, Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ took on incarnate form or when He took on human form in order to save us. 
Now let me stop here and ask you a question. If someone were to ask you to name one adjective that you would place before the word life, and it would come true in your life, what would that one adjective be? Would it be a rich life, an abundant life, a party life, a healthy life, a famous life, a pampered life, a sporty life, a prominent life, a comfortable life, a legendary life? Which adjective would you place before the word life if it could come true in your life? Now, as you think about this, and as you ask yourself this question, ask yourself this second question, will this sort of life bring with it joy and happiness? Will it last forever, or is it only temporary? You see, what John is advocating for in these verses is that the life you and I should be wanting and striving for is to have an eternal life, a life lived in the present, but in preparation for the life to come. Because that truly is the best type of life there is, an eternal life, a life that has eternity secured and promised, being with our Lord forever in heaven. That is the best type of life. Now, that doesn't mean we neglect this present world in which we live, but it is a reminder that the actions and decisions made in this present life will reverberate throughout eternity. That means the concept of eternal life is not simply an idea of something yet to come and we wait for it, but it begins now. Now look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Here in verse 3, John was telling the Christian readers that since an essential element of the eternal life is to be together with God forever, Therefore, that fellowship should begin today. And in cultivating that fellowship with God now, in preparation for what is to come, we as Christians are to join with Him and other like-minded Christians who are also intimately close to Jesus in fellowship. We prepare today to be in fellowship with God so that we can be ready and excited for the amazing eternal life that is to come. In a sense, the day we receive Christ as our personal Savior is the day we really start living the eternal life. You know, I think for many, they simply want eternal life because the other option isn't better. If I were to ask someone, do you prefer heaven or hell based on what you know, most would naturally choose heaven. If you ask them why they choose heaven, they'll tell you because hell is full of suffering and punishment. And I hear that heaven is wonderful. But if you were to ask those people honestly if they were looking forward to going to heaven today, I think most would be hesitant because they don't want to leave this present earth. They would rather be here on earth because heaven doesn't seem so appealing compared to earth. But remember what the Apostle Paul struggled with in the book of Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, Paul writes, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then he writes in verse 23 of the same chapter, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. For the Apostle Paul, the reason he so looked forward to going to heaven was not because hell was so terrible, but because he could not wait to be with Jesus, to see Him face to face someone whom he was so intimately close with and he so longed to see. 
It is for that reason we should desire heaven. My friends, is that the reason you desire going to heaven? So that you can see the Savior? Because you can't wait to be with Jesus, to see Him face to face, and to spend eternity with Him? That really should be our reason as we anticipate heaven. But for many, it is not. Because simply put, we do not have an intimate relationship with Jesus. We're not close to Jesus. We don't know much about Him and what He's like apart from the fact that He died in our place. That's why often during the holidays even, people are willing to pay almost any amount, even double or triple the airfare price just to be able to fly home and see and embrace their loved ones. Why? Because they have an intimate, close relationship. You aren't going to spend that type of money just to fly home to meet casual friends. It should be the same way as we treat our desire to go to heaven. We want to go and see the Savior we long to meet. Remember, John addressed this letter to a Christian audience who had already placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They already believed that He died in their place. So now his encouragement was for them to deepen the relationship in order to excitedly anticipate for what is to come in the eternal Sadly, so many Christians never really pursue an intimate relationship with Jesus in fellowship after they place their trust in Him as their personal Savior. In fact, they don't see a need to do so because for them, eternal life is just a destination and they know where they're going now. But you see, my friends, the eternal life is not just about a destination and a life condition. It is about a relationship with someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ, whom you will spend the rest of eternity with. And so we should be motivated to get to know Him well now. Let me give you an example. If someone were to ask me, who do you prefer to spend the next 10 years of your life stuck with on a deserted island, where on that deserted island you have all of the amenities provided for you to survive, so it's just the two of you. Your options are Michael Jordan or your wife Cindy. Who would you choose? Who would I choose? Well, while Michael Jordan would be fascinating to spend a day with or even a week with talking to him about his two three-peat championship runs with the Chicago Bulls or how he was able to use his marketing skills to partner with Nike to create a brand of shoes and a line of shoes and brand apparel. I really don't know MJ at all. I don't know his temperament. I don't know how he is when he's grumpy. I just don't know how he is. So I wouldn't choose him if I knew it would just be the two of us for the next 10 years. But on the other hand, I've known Cindy for 20 years. I know, I believe everything about her. And while sometimes she makes me so very mad when she doesn't do as I ask, or she makes me so frustrated because she won't change to how I want her to be, I have a 20-year relationship with her, and I love her. And I would rather spend the next 10 years on a deserted island with someone I know for so long rather than with a stranger who, while famous, I know nothing about. This is why we need to pursue an intimate relationship with Jesus now and to get to really know Him well so that with a strong fellowship, our desire, anticipation, and excitement for the eternal life is with a longing to see face-to-face -face the person whom we've established a deep relationship with already. And now look at verse 4 for why we want to develop an intimate walk with Jesus and a fellowship with God. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. The Bible tells us the pursuit of being intimately close with our Lord is so that we will experience joy, that we will experience joy in life, and that it will be full. My friends, joy is the natural byproduct of fellowship with God. Joy is the natural byproduct of an intimate walk with our Lord. In fact, this has been the theme of John's writings. If you look at John chapter 15, verse 11, John highlights the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And then one chapter over in John chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. It's as if John wants us to know where fullness of joy comes from. And the Bible tells us that the fullness of joy comes in this life when we are in intimate fellowship with our Lord. In Christ, specifically in fellowship with our Lord, there is ultimate joy. And who doesn't want to be joyful? The eternal life, a life focused on Jesus, is a life full of joy. Spiritually speaking, where there is no joy, there is no fellowship. And here we can extrapolate our first principle, number one. Fellowship principle number one. The joy of our eternal life is rooted in an intimate fellowship with God. The joy of our eternal life is rooted in an intimate fellowship with God. You know, it's hard to describe the great joy that is found in an intimate walk with Jesus unless you experience it yourself. People have often asked me, what does that joy look like? If I know what that joy looks like, then I'll be motivated to pursue a fellowship with God. But my friends, it's hard to describe something that you yourself do not experience. It's like telling someone about the thrill of riding a crazy roller coaster. You can try to describe it fully, but it's not the same unless you've personally experienced the hairpin turns and going upside down and the rush of adrenaline as you drop in that coaster. You can only hear about the excitement, but never truly experience it unless you yourself are in that ride. It is the same with joy that comes when one is intimately close to God. I can't fully describe it for you, but it is a biblical truth repeated often. And if we will only just try it out for ourselves to get a taste of it, you will experience that fullness of joy. You know, I don't know of anyone who's ever told me, Pastor, I took your advice. I followed Scripture, and I grew intimately close to God. And, you know, I just hated the experience. It was miserable. My friends, try it out. The Bible tells us the joy of our eternal life is rooted in an intimate fellowship with God. If you want to seek joy in this uncertain time, establish an intimate walk with God. I read now verses 5 and 6 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
Here in these verses, we're told very clearly in verse 5 that God is light and that in Him there is no darkness at all. This is speaking of God's divine holiness. God is perfectly holy in His character and desires holiness of all who desire to be in relationship and fellowship with Him. So Christians claiming they have intimate fellowship with a holy God but continually walk in darkness or live in sin are lying to others and even lying to themselves. And this should serve as a wake-up call to Christians who live in sin that you cannot claim to have an intimate walk with Christ. Christians who live in sin are those who love sin or are indifferent to it. They don't believe that sin grieves the heart of God, which it does. And they are Christians who love the things of the world. If this describes you, then you will not be able to walk intimately close to a holy God. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This verse tells us clearly that since God operates in the realm of light and in His holiness, that if we want to have an intimate relationship with God, then we also need to walk in the realm of holiness. We are the ones that have to make the move, not Him, meaning God doesn't lower His standard of holiness just so that we can be with Him or He with us. But we have to be the ones willing to leave our sinful living to engage with Him in righteous living. But some may really wonder, is there really joy living a life of holiness and being in fellowship with God? Because for me, the sinful life sounds pretty fun. I mean, you can sleep around with all the partners that you want, That seems great. You don't have to follow any rules to get the best in life, to get ahead in life. That sounds pretty good. Why would I want to give up all of this just to be in relationship with God? But my friends, let me ask you something. Is it fun to live a life where you're always looking behind your back wondering if you will be exposed today? Is it fun to live a life where people call you a hypocrite behind your back because you are a Christian who lives in sin? Can you live your life with joy, wondering if your next sexual encounter will be a deadly one? Or you're just simply one exposure away from going to jail or having your entire life's reputation and testimony going down the drain? It's not so joyful when you think about it. I remember when the Dallas Mavericks were really bad in the 90s before Mark Cuban bought the franchise. And my friends and I would buy really cheap seats in the nosebleed section of the old Reunion Arena where the Mavericks used to play. And then once when we got into the arena, we would sneak into the much more expensive courtside seats, which often weren't filled because very few people went to the games. While it was exciting at first to be able to sit up close to these players, We really couldn't enjoy the game because we were always wondering and looking behind our backs if the ushers would catch us and kick us out. We were always looking over our shoulders, wondering whether we would be spotted. And of course, the Holy Spirit kept prompting my heart that this was wrong and made me feel very guilty. And it's never fun when you're made to feel guilty. Sinful living isn't all that great. Personally experiencing righteous living and sinful living, I can attest that while it's harder to live righteously, 
It is more fulfilling and joyful and definitely better than sinful living. You see, fellowship principle number two is this. Righteous living through Christ is essential to having an intimate experience and fellowship with God. Righteous living through Christ is essential to having an intimate fellowship with God. This truth should not discourage us from thinking you can't live up to God's standard of holiness so that you shouldn't even consider trying to be in fellowship with Him. This verse is reminding Christians that the arena of play where we fellowship with God is in righteousness and holiness and not in sin. It's like when I was young, I had a friend who came from a very wealthy family, and his house had all the amenities with a swimming pool, arcade game room, half-court basketball court. And when we got together to play, I would always suggest to go over to his house to play, not to mine. Not because I was ashamed of our small house with only a backyard to run around in, but because comparing the two, his place was so much better. It's simply better to play there. I hope you see my point. God says, my arena is so much better for you to come and have fellowship with. Come and experience its greatness. But to do so, you must live in righteousness. And then we have that beautiful last phrase in verse 7 that reminds us that because of the blood of Jesus Christ who died in our place and took our sins upon Himself, that He cleanses us from all sin. You see, God took something that was inaccessible and made it accessible through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can truly enjoy our fellowship with God. God took something that was inaccessible and made it accessible through His Son, Jesus. That's why all Christians can now have intimate fellowship with God, because that access has been opened because of Christ for us to pursue righteous living. I read now verses 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. In these verses, John reminds Christians who believe they are pretty righteous and don't have any sin in their life that needs correcting or changing, that they are only fooling themselves. And this happens when we are not sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and self-examining ourselves against the truths of the Scriptures. Sadly, there are a lot of people who live in denial. Even when confronted with sin, they say, I don't need to confess. But they just pretend that they haven't done anything really bad or wrong that needs forgiveness from God. But it doesn't have to be us to impose our standard of holiness on them. The Bible is a standard of holiness that God expects us to live up to. And if we were to read the Scriptures, every one of us can find areas in our life that we need to correct and ask God for forgiveness. Let's say that you receive a million dollars, and your friend who gave it to you says, accept it, it's a gift, enjoy it, he says. But what if later you found out that that million dollar was stolen by your friend? How would you react? Would you say, well... I was told it was okay to accept the gift, so I accepted it. And even with this new information, I still have a clear conscience. Of course, I think most of us, when we find out that what was given to me wasn't fully disclosed to have it being stolen or improperly or unethically obtained, 
we would try to make amends and say, sorry, I didn't know the full story, and try to rectify the situation. But there would still be some people who live in denial that something wrong was even done. They would justify in their minds and tell others that they were assured that when they accepted the money, that everything was above board. And so they have a very clear conscience, and there's nothing for them really to do. Arguments and justification can be made for each side. But that's why a standard like the Scriptures gives us a reference point by which to measure our lives. And if our lives don't measure up, then we have to confess our sins and acknowledge that it is wrong, as verse 9 tells us. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, then God will forgive us. Now remember, this is a letter to Christians. Why do Christians need to confess for sins if they are already saved? Well, it's not because our salvation is at stake. Our position in Christ is eternally secured when we place our trust in Jesus. But what is being talked about by John here is familial or relationship forgiveness. If we have wronged the Lord in sin or through sinful living as Christians, while we don't lose our salvation, our relationship with the Lord is affected. So we have to confess and tell Him, I'm sorry. We have to apologize and ask for His forgiveness. We have to tell Him, Lord, we want to change from our sinful ways. And by doing so, we reestablish that relationship. And you know, the wonderful thing is that God always forgives us through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. An illustration to this would be if my child does something wrong, and he doesn't apologize to me, and he is pridefully stubborn that he did no wrong. While he doesn't stop becoming my son and I his father, I won't want to be playing any games with him or really want to spend any time with him as he pretends as if nothing is wrong. There would be a strain in our relationship because he did do wrong and he has not apologized. However, if he says to me, Dad, sorry for what I said and what I did, I will surely forgive him because he is my son, and I will now want to hang out and play with him even though he really never stopped being my son. It is the same way in any of our relationships, whether it be with our spouse or with our friends. Failure to apologize and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I want to change, will strain the intimacy of one's relationship. And here we extrapolate fellowship principle number three. Regular confession of sin through self-examination is necessary to maintain good fellowship with the Lord. Regular confession of sin through self-examination is necessary to maintain good fellowship with the Lord. My friends, let me ask you a question. How often do you examine your life to see if there are things that you need to ask God to forgive you of? How many of you often look at your life honestly and say, these are the things I need to ask God to forgive me of? Or do you feel yourself pretty good that you don't have anything to ask God to forgive you of? If that's your attitude, perhaps that's the reason why you aren't very close with the Lord, because there's the hindrance of sin that is affecting your relationship. Verse 10 reminds us that there are many people who are in denial that they need to confess sin at all, because they believe they haven't done anything wrong that needs admitting. This is spiritual self-pride. And that's why so many people don't have that intimacy of relationship or they don't find that intimacy of relationship with the Lord that they so hope for. My friends, if you don't think you have sins that need confessing, how about when you prioritize 
others or other events and activities over time spent with God? How about the many idols in your life that you've set up where you love those things more than you love God? How about the half-hearted efforts you put into worshiping Him where you always have something of greater priority than carving out time each day or at least once a week to spend time with Him? Or perhaps where you allow distractions to take your focus away from what should be a time of worship? Or perhaps in your life, the lack of respect and honor that you give Him through how you speak and through your actions. My friends, with an honest self-assessment, you and I certainly have a lot of sins to confess daily. You know, I hate it when my wife is angry at me, but she won't tell me what I did wrong. She'll tell me, you go think about what you did, and when you've thought of it, you come back and apologize. And so I go off to think about what I did, but I end up thinking about 10 different things I probably did wrong that has made her upset and mad. Now, she may have only been mad about one thing, but I end up apologizing for 10 different things. But that's exactly what we are to do when we honestly examine our hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit, where we identify areas in our life that needs confession to the Lord so that there will be unhindered relationship and intimacy with our Savior. And you know, my friends, this confession is honestly very convenient for us as we don't have to go to a confessional booth or to a pastor or to a priest. We can simply do it in prayer in the name of Jesus because He alone is our advocate and our only intercessor before God the Father, as verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 tells us. I read now 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, let's unpack these wonderful verses. First of all, in all tenderness and love, as a father to his children, John gives these readers the reason he has written as he did, and it was so that they would not sin. You see, previously, he had asserted that everyone sins, and he did so not to discourage them that there was no hope, but he wanted to call their attention to sinful living as it relates to an intimate fellowship with God so that they would shy away from sin in their life. It doesn't mean that they will never sin or that they could somehow achieve sinless perfection on this side of heaven. John's point was that while not a license to sin, It is wonderful that as Christians who still have a propensity to sin because of our sin nature, we can know that we have a defense attorney, an advocate, someone who stands on our side and pleads our case before God the Father, and that is God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, how is Jesus advocating for us? He isn't telling the Father that we didn't do what we did. We did what we did. And we are guilty of all the sins we have done in action and in our thought life. But Jesus is telling God the Father that the penalty of our sins have been paid for through His death on the cross. His shed blood covers our sins in the past, in the present, and in the future. Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we can be forgiven and stand before the Father justified, declared righteous. The Bible in verse 2 tells us that Jesus Himself is the propitiation for our sins. 
Now, the word propitiation means satisfaction, and the idea is this. God was rightfully wrathful against our sin because He is a holy God. That means our rightful punishment for sin is death, which Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ became the satisfactory sacrifice to appease God's rightful wrath for our sins. Jesus Himself, as the sinless sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's anger as the sins of every person in the entire world, past, present, and future, was placed on His Son. Now, that doesn't mean everyone on earth will be saved. It just means anyone who places their trust in the finished work of Jesus can be saved when they appropriate Jesus' redemptive blood on themselves through faith in Him. So through Jesus' sacrifice, God sees each Christian from the perspective of our positional salvation as individuals who are declared righteous. And in our justified position, we can have intimate fellowship with a holy God. Now, I know that was a mouthful, and therein lies some great theology. I hope you and I will meditate and think about what a life-changing, amazing truth this is, that we have someone defending us, and His defense of us is to point to Himself, to what He did for us in taking the penalty we deserve so that our rightful punishment is now paid for. And when we internalize it and meditate upon this truth, how can we not but want to love Jesus more and to serve Him fully with our lives? It's like if we rack up a bill of over $10 million, and there is no way we can pay for it in our lifetime of earnings. In fact, the weight of that unpayable debt severely limits the joy of our life because every time I earn something, it doesn't go to myself. It goes off to trying to pay off the debt that I have. In fact, let's say that there is someone who sends a debt collector to watch me 24-7 to make sure that I can't enjoy any of life's luxuries, like going out to eat or enjoying a trip abroad or watching a movie because I owe this huge debt and anything I earn must not go to my comforts or luxuries, but must go to repaying this debt. I can't even think about a hope of enjoying my life at all. Because if I even think about not wanting to pay this debt, I may be jailed. And so my life is hopeless. And perhaps I look forward to the end of life because I'll never be able to pay my obligations in this lifetime. In fact, I will receive no pity from others because this is my obligation. This is what I deserve. No one's going to pity me. But what if someone comes along and pays off that $10 million debt that has so weighed down my life and has given me no hope, and He does so with no strings attached, all I have to do is to accept this kind gift. In fact, if any bank or collector or individual wants to say that I owe the money, this person who has given me $10 million is with me 24-7 telling all those who say I still owe them something that my debt has already been paid off in full. Now, I can enjoy life. The debt has been lifted, and I will be able to find hope and joy again. Now, how would I repay this person? I think naturally you and I would want to spend more time 
trying to get to know this person, this person who would give such a great gift to unload my burden. I would want to thank this person through the way I live my life. I would want to consider how he wishes for me to live my life. Well, you know where this story is going. This man's name is Jesus. And more than this hypothetical $10 million, he paid our penalty, which is death, to give us eternal life. Would we not want to spend our lives in close fellowship with Him, trying to get to know Him, trying to live our lives in such a way that would please Him, trying to seek His heart to make worthwhile the life that He has purchased with His life? You see, fellowship principle number four is this. We should desire intimacy and fellowship with God because Jesus Christ has saved us. We should desire intimacy and fellowship with God because Jesus Christ has saved us. It is a simple principle with a profound application. It is a simple principle to want to be in relationship with people who saved us, especially the one who gave us eternal life when we could not obtain it ourselves. One of my favorite short hymns is titled, He Paid a Debt He Did Not Owe. And it goes something like this. He paid the debt he did not owe. I owe the debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. He paid the debt on Calvary. He saved my soul. He set me free. I'm so glad that Jesus washed all my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. One day He's coming back for me to live with Him eternally. Won't it be glory to see Him on that day? I then will sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Yes, Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. My friends, may the reason of why we desire to be in intimate fellowship with our Lord is remembering that Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay to give us eternal life. Let me end with this story. This story is about two wives who were doing their laundry in a laundromat. They were both mending their husband's pants. One wife said, my husband is so miserable, nothing goes right at work and he can't find anything good on television. Our home is a place of despair. When we go to church, the song leader is terrible, and the pastor is an idiot. The other wife said, you know, my husband is so excited. He can't wait to go to church. He loves the sermons. We laugh all the time in our home, and we enjoy our family. Well, it got very quiet in the laundry room as the women continued sewing the pants. One was patching the seat of the pants, and the other was patching the knees. You see, for one husband, he wore out the seat of his pants just sitting down and waiting for the world to interact with him, and he got very bitter. While the other husband wore out the knee portion of his pants in prayer, enjoying intimate fellowship with God. My friends, our faith becomes unshakable during difficult and challenging times when we cultivate intimacy and fellowship with God. Because remember, the joy of our eternal life is rooted in an intimate fellowship with God. 
Righteous living through Christ is essential to having an intimate fellowship with God. Regular confession of sin through self-examination is necessary to maintain good fellowship with the Lord. And we should desire intimacy and fellowship with God because Jesus Christ has saved us. May we all know the immense joy and a confident faith that comes from an intimate walk with Jesus who saved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the book of 1 John, which reminds us that joy comes through a life of intimate fellowship with You. And Lord, there are times that even in my life, sin hinders my relationship with You. I pray that each person who has listened to this sermon will honestly examine their lives and look for the sin hindrances and ask for Your forgiveness. And thank You that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, You wash away our sins. Thank You, Lord, because You saved us when You died on the cross, and You paid the penalty and the price of sin that I could never pay. And for that, Lord, I desire, and I hope it is the desire of all, to want to live in intimate fellowship with You and to live as You so desire as we serve as a testimony and as a witness to this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.